I just drink some of yours. <laughs> That's okay. Hey. Hi, everybody. Oh, hi. Welcome to episode 10. 10. We made it a whole two handfuls of episodes. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. We didn't do anything. I watched Yellowstone until 2 a.m. Oh, what is it about? Have you seen Sons of Anarchy? Sons of Anarchy? Mm-mm. So it's basically like cowboy gangs. And they're not, it's, they never use the word gang, but it reminds me of a gang. Oh, okay. Nice. It's fine. Are you rewatching it? No, this is a new show. What's a new show? I'm pretty sure Jordan and Tori recommended it, and we started watching it. Nice. Uh, yeah, we didn't really do anything for New Year's either. Um, but otherwise, how are you? Good. I've been sick. Yeah. Had a cold cough for way too long. Not, Not COVID. Yeah, that's no. good. There's something going around for sure besides COVID. It's because everyone was locked up and no one has the immune system to handle regular colds anymore. Yeah, probably. Anyway, what was our New Year's resolution questions? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to read them. Yeah, it's in there somewhere. What did you learn about yourself in 2021? What did I put there? I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. If I were a Pokemon. <laughs> what does it say? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Katie says on her notes, if I were a Pokemon, I think this was the year I evolved. <laughs> 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 okay. Yeah, I've learned to stand up for myself even when it was hard. I've battled a lot of emotional and physical battles this year, and I think I'm going into this year stronger. Yeah. That's good. What kind of Pokemon are you? You know, I thought Charmander. Aw. Mm-hmm. That's the best one. Yeah. You got bigger wings, eh? Yeah. What about you? Um, what did you learn about yourself in 2021? You know, when we picked these questions, I didn't actually think about it <laughs> <laughs> until right now. Yeah. Great. So I think this year I had to not look at what I've done as failure. Mm-hmm. Like I've been very scared of failure this year because I quit my job to start my own business mm-hmm. and I was just scared to fail because I failed other things but learned from them. Mm-hmm. I kind of had to get over the failure word okay, and turn it into gaining experience instead of failing. I am very hard on myself, and that's something I think I need, this next year I need to learn how to actually realize that I'm good at things. Yeah. (laughs) I don't let myself be good at things. I can't admit that I'm good at things. I feel like I'm pretty mediocre (laughs) in life. (laughs) Um, What's your other question? It's, how are you going to step out of your comfort zone in 2022? For me, I think that I've done a lot of stepping out of my comfort zone this last year in 2021 yeah with starting my own business and then us starting the podcast and just like I don't know you're just gonna keep on going huh keep doing that (laughs) (laughs) I'm just gonna keep doing that doing what I'm doing (laughs) that's a good plan that's a safe plan (laughs) um I'm gonna step out of my comfort zone by I want to learn a new skill like what I don't know but I want it to be a big one I don't know what it's gonna be yet yeah, I think learning a new skill is always good because better to have more than less skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so also I wanted to take a moment and mention 
uh, Jordan and Tori's podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Jordan and Tori, they were our guests for uh, Bring Your Own Booze. Tori was our first guest, and Jordan was our fourth guest, right? Yeah. And they have a podcast, so I'm just going to go ahead and let you guys listen to their promo right now. Here. Enjoy. Go check out our new podcast, A Cup of Show. The show where we review movies and TV shows, both old and new. All while enjoying a nice cup of joe. You can find us at acupofshowpod.com and Instagram. Listen to us at anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you might listen to your podcasts. Go check us out. Yeah, check them out. Give them a follow and a listen. Yeah, do it. All right, April, you ready for your story? No, I don't know. The story is very confusing. So, I mean, we'll we'll make it to the end. How we get there is a mystery. So I might have questions. Oh yeah, you'll have questions and the answers I may or may not know. <laughs> have you ever heard of Mark Kaufman? I have not heard of Mark Kaufman. Well, he sucks. Oh, I'll tell you why. Okay. References, can you guess? Murderpedia, Wikipedia, Sally Tribune, no. Deseret News. I mean, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Murderpedia and Wikipedia, yes. Okay. And also the Netflix short series Murder Among the Mormons. Have you That's a series? Have you watched it? No. You should. Really? Um basically I'm just gonna tell you everything that happens in that. But, okay. <laughs> but you should go watch it because there I don't put every single detail in there. Yeah. And it's really good. Okay. That's cool. Okay, so Mark Hoffman was born December seventh, nineteen fifty-four. He was a sixth-generation Mormon. Like, six generations back is when they became Mormon. Got it. Okay. Yeah, his family line joined the Mormon church six generations ago. Okay. His grandmother had been the wife of a polygamist, but his family growing up, he had questions about it. His family was like, hush-hush about it, and it really pissed him off because he's like, why not tell me about our family history? But they didn't want to talk about it that kind of started his resentment toward the Mormon church. Yeah. He was a below average high school student, but he had a lot of hobbies like stage magic, electronics, chemistry, and coin collecting. Him and his friends, they used to make bombs like for fun. They used to go on the outskirts of Murray, Utah and just make bombs and stupid kids and stuff. So that had to have been in the 60s? Um, yeah, late 60s. Mark Hoffman's parents were very strict LDS followers, very strict LDS parents. Like, for example, his dad, Bill, saw some children's books on the floor in their house. Mm -hmm. One of them was about dinosaurs, and he was upset that his children were learning about evolution. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's just too much. That's so dumb. Yeah. So Mark served an LDS mission in 1973. He went to England Southwest Mission. He spent a lot of his time in England. He would go to old bookstores and would buy old Mormon literature as well as anti-Mormon literature because in England, a lot of it was anti-Mormon. Yeah, right. He became very frustrated while he was on his mission while reading the anti-Mormon publications because they would say that the church only tells one side of the story and doesn't own up to the negative events that they were involved in. So he, he started to become very resentful and frustrated about his upbringing. Mm -hmm. 
His former girlfriend, before he left on his mission, said she was pretty sure that he lost faith in the LDS church long before he served his mission. He went only because of social pressure and to not disappoint his parents, which is so common. Is so common even now. Yep. Like, even it's now. expected, so they'll do it, whether or not they really want to or feel the need to. Yep. Now, it's obviously not everyone. It's just common, especially for young men and young women that have grown up LDS, and it's just an expectation. Yep, exactly. So, when he returned from his mission, he enrolled as a pre-med major at the Utah State University. He married his wife, Dora Lee Olds, in 1979, and they had four children together. Okay. So, that's about Mark, okay? Yeah. Let's move on to the crime. What did he do? Well... It gets, like, bad, but then it gets worse, so just... Oh, no. He found a dime and forged a rare mint mark on this dime and was told by an organization of coin collectors that it was genuine. So he was like, well, shit. Yeah. I can totally fraud this way through. Yeah. Oh, man, and do you know how pissed off people might be if they get a coin that they think is mint? Yeah. And it's not? Well, he ends up saying, like, I mean... What is the definition of genuine? Because if you believe it's genuine, then what does it matter if it's not? Like, he just doesn't care. Okay. Okay. (laughs) When he returned from his mission, he became a dealer in antique items. He forged and altered anything from coins, books, historical banknotes, by adding signatures of well-known figures to these items, which made them more valuable. Okay. He became famous for his quote-unquote discoveries of previously unknown documents, especially pertaining to LDS history. Okay. His first famous, like, forgery that he sold to the church was called the Anthon Transcript. Okay. So in 1980, Mark said he found a 17th century King James Bible with a folded paper in the folds of the pages. His wife said that he had a Bible sitting on the table when she got home from wherever she was. And she was just, like, going through it because she, she didn't know a lot about what he was doing, but she would just, like, look at it and yeah. admire it. Old right. stuff is cool, you know? Yeah. Anybody would just think, just want to look at that stuff, you know? Right. So she they don't know what it is. Yeah. So she started flipping through the pages, and she noticed these group of pages that were gummed together. They were just, like, stuck, you know? Yeah. And within the pages, she was like, hey, Mark, there's something in the pages here. He came over, and they worked together to open up these pages, and they found this folded-up paper. Mm -hmm. And this paper was a transcript that Joseph Smith's scribe Martin Harris had presented to Charles Anthon, a Columbia Classics professor in 1828. Whoa. Yeah, it has these Egyptian, reformed Egyptian characters that were supposedly copied by Joseph Smith onto this paper from the golden plates directly. So that's what was supposedly on this document, right? The golden plates are where he supposedly, what am I trying to say? (laughs) Supposedly got uh, the other half of the Bible. Yeah. So what the belief is. The New World Bible, basically. Yeah. I don't know. It's a book. A Book of Mormon. That's what that is. (laughs) So Dean Jesse is an expert on handwriting and old documents in the historical department of the LDS Church. Uh And he confirmed this document to be true and real. The LDS Church announced the discovery of the Anthon script and bought the document from Mark for 25 grand in 1980. That doesn't seem like a lot. 
for a piece of paper, I feel like it kind of is. But I mean, if it's like a big puzzle piece in your in your church's history, I feel like that's like worth a million. I don't Especially know. Especially if it's from the gold plates yeah, or whatever. I feel like that's that's a million dollar fine. That's not like to give you a house. That's to give you like a fortune. In the 80s, it might be more. I should have done the math of what it would have been today. Um, so Mark dropped out of college after this and decided to go into business as a dealer full-time okay. in rare books and documents. He soon fabricated other historically significant documents and became popular among the LDS history buffs for his discoveries of previously unknown documents and materials about the LDS movement. Wow, so you'd have to be like an expert, though, to be able to forge them, right? Yeah. Because, like, he'd have to know everything about the storyline to be yeah. able to, like, insert these little pieces. Yeah, he became an expert in Mormon history and created documents yeah. to support that and kind of alter it and tweak it just a little bit. These fabricated documents and items not only fooled the first presidency, which included Gordon B. Hinckley as a second counselor, but also historical document experts and distinguished historians. So wow. he was fooling everyone with these documents. Jeez. The next notable forgery he made was the Joseph Smith III Blessing. Okay. This document, so in the 80s, there were a lot of, like, findings of new documents and books and things like that, either from people who were searching for them, like Mark, or people who, fit, like, they were descendants of church leaders, and they would find things, but most of them donated them to the church, but mm. document dealers, antique people would sell them to the church. I see. Huh. Um, wow, what a gig. Right? <laughs> okay, so anyway, in 1981, Mark went into the headquarters of the LDS church with a document that supposedly proved Joseph Smith had designated his son Joseph Smith III rather than Brigham Young as his successor. Really? The next prophet with a forged cover letter supposedly written by Thomas Bullock dated January 27, 1865. In this fake letter, Bullock chastises Brigham Young for all the copies of the blessing being destroyed. He's like really meddling into all the history. Right. Bullock supposedly writes that although he believes Brigham Young to be the legit leader of the LDS church, he's still keeping the copy of this blessing that Joseph Smith gave for his successor to be his son. So... There's wow. a there's a church called the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints okay. who believe that the prophet role should be direct descendants of Joseph Smith. So this solidified their beliefs because they believed in everything else, but they believed that the prophet should be direct descendants. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was like the piece that they were needing, you know, to yeah. their puzzle. But it kind of screwed up the main LDS church, uh, right. their teachings of how they choose a prophet, right? Right. So if this letter were real, it would definitely paint Brigham Young and the LDS church in a negative light. Yeah. In September 1981, when Mark forged this letter, he gave it to Gordon B. Hinckley as a faithful Mormon. So he's trying to build up his character to be a faithful Mormon, and he's like, I found this, I'll gift it to you. Mm. Okay, mm -hmm. so it looks like he has no ulterior motives. So, hold on, I lost my place. He gifted it to Gordon B. Hinckley, mm -hmm. but he, the letter was also given 
like another copy of it was given to the RLDS church. So the one the who reformed or whatever. Yeah, the reorganized. All reorganized. Yeah. Um, do oh, they still exist? RLDS? Yeah, they, they're called something else now. It's, uh, I'll have to look for it. Oh, okay. They changed their name to something. So when the RLDS church got a copy of the letter, the original LDS church then scrambled to get the blessing document. Mark was posing as a faithful Mormon. He just gave it to them in exchange for historical items worth over 20 grand. So he huh. traded it. He orchestrated the situation so that the church would have to make the blessing public. So because they can't tuck it away and hide it and keep their version of the church, you know, legitimized because he gave it to another organization, they now have to make it public. The next day, a New York Times headline read, Mormon document raises doubts on succession of church leaders. And the LDS church was forced to confirm the discovery and publicly present the document to the RLDS church. Though, I don't know what their excuse was for why Brigham Young became the, you know, how, how they covered it. Yeah, you know? like what, what their explanation was for why it happened the way it did. Right. But Mark's motive was to embarrass the Mormon church, and in this situation showed him how much power he had to do just that. Yeah, I'd say. So probably one of the most popular of his forgeries, the Salamander Letter. Have you ever heard of that? That sounds familiar to me. Okay, yeah. let me tell you about it. Okay. A salamander is a reptile. Yeah. Okay. It's the thing that chased us in the woods. Yes. Yeah. Are those real? Yeah. <laughs> okay. They are. Because I, I was told that, like, what we saw wasn't real. I know, but they are. Okay. I thought it was a dragon. I thought <laughs> that, too. Guys, that thing was huge. Like, we were probably, what, five and six years old? Yeah. And I'm saying that thing was the size of... It had to have been, like, five or six feet long. Yeah. It was, and it was fat. It almost looked like an alligator. Yeah. Yes. It was the size of an alligator, but it looked like a lizard, I guess. But it was giant. It was giant. I think it was a salamander. Had to have been. We saw the salamander, you guys. Okay. Be jealous. Yeah. <laughs> so the salamander letter um, was created in 1984 by Mark. This letter was supposedly written by Martin Harris, the scribe of Joseph Smith. Yeah to William Wines Phelps. The letter described a very different version of the recovery of the gold plates. Oh. Not only did the forgery make it clear that Joseph Smith had been practicing money digging, which is just treasure hunting. Well, didn't he though? Um, I thought that was true. It's... Unless that's where this rumor... Unless we're that... I couldn't, I couldn't find definitively yes or no okay. from this. I think it's at this point either rumor that is true or rumor that is untrue and there's no way to disprove or prove it. Yeah. Okay. So, let's see. They made it clear that Joseph Smith had been practicing treasure hunting through magical practices. So he was using black magic to do that. <laughs> oh. Yeah. But instead of the angel Moroni, which if you're not LDS... The story is that Joseph Smith went to the Sacred Grove, which is basically just the woods in New York, in New York, and he was praying and he had a vision of this angel named Angel Moroni and the angel told him about the gold plates and that he was told by God to translate, translate them. them into a book, which is now the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Good summarization. I probably missed a bunch of stuff, but anyway, <laughs> that's the gist. So instead of Angel Moroni, it was a white salamander that appeared to Joseph Smith. I believe it. 
<laughs> just kidding. Yeah, that totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, collector and businessman Steve Christensen bought the salamander letter from Mark for forty grand. Oh. So it had to some for some reason it had to become public knowledge because of the difference of what it is to the LDS original story. It was like groundbreaking. Yeah, it's like completely different and kind of mythical sounding. Yeah, right. You know. So it's something they needed to look into and right talk about. So when it became public knowledge, Apostle Dallin H. Oaks seemed to try to legitimize the letter by saying the words white salamander could just be another description of angel moroni <laughs> yep yeah could be <laughs> could be in the 1820s the word salamander might also refer to a mythical being thought to be able to live in fire and quote being that it is able to live in fire is a good approximation of the description joseph gave of the angel moroni unquote whatever doesn't uh, make sense well okay but okay Here's the thing, though, is if salamander at the time meant something that you just said came out of fire or something, yeah. wouldn't you think that's more hell, right? Not light? Yeah. Weird. Anyway, so the salamander letter basically threw a bunch of ripples into the LDS church. But a lot of members questioned their faith at this point. The next big one mm -hmm. is called the William E. McClellan Collection, okay. more commonly called just the McClellan Collection. So, William McClellan was a part of the first group of the Twelve Apostles. He kept journals the entire time he was involved with the church, and after he was excommunicated from the church, he was the one who started the RLDS oh, church. Okay. okay. Got it. So, this specific collection that Mark discovered, quote-unquote, included a letter from Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, uh -huh. that said Joseph Smith's older brother was actually the one who had the vision of Angel Moroni and found the gold plates. Jeez, he is changing the story. Uh, yeah, everywhere. Completely. Like, all the biggest points, and he's just... He's messing with it real hard. So, this McClellan collection was never... You'll see, but it wasn't ever actually seen by anybody. Okay. Okay, got it. His forgeries didn't stop there, though. No one knows how many of his forged documents are still floating around in the world, altering the version of history we think we know. Yeah. So he also forged a letter from Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Max Smith, describing the origin of the Book of Mormon. He also created a letter from Martin Harris and David Whitmer, two of the three witnesses, each giving personal description of their own visions. Were those documents not in existence? Nope. Okay, and he still just, aren't. He just, he's just creating them out of nowhere. Like, his imagination is just taking it and wow. running with it. He also created a contract between Smith and Egbert Bratt Grandin for the printing of the first edition of the Book of Mormon. So he's not only creating historically significant things, but he's also just creating random things like this contract that... Yeah. But it well, gives him money. Like, people well, are buying it. And I wonder if that gives him, like, legitimacy a little bit, yeah. you know? Where he's, like, showing people, like, why would I make this up if I... Like, it's just so small and insignificant, you know? Right. But, like, it kind of just adds to his story of, like, no, this is all real. Right. He also created two pages of the original Book of Mormon transcript taken in dictation from Joseph Smith by Oliver Cowdery. So he made up two pages of the Book of Mormon. Jeez. <laughs> I... <laughs> this is like stressing me out a little bit. I know. So I'm like, he's changing everything. I know, yeah. Who knows what the hell is oh. going on? Yeah. And I'm sure they sort it out because this is 
not what we learned when we were LDS. Yeah. But. In 1983, the church bought an 1825 Joseph Smith holograph letter confirming that Smith had been treasure hunting and practicing black magic for five years before his first vision. He sold it to them for $15,000 and promised it was the only letter in existence. But Mark leaked the existence of the letter to the press and forced the LDS church to release the letter to scholars for study. Gosh, he's just getting away with it. Yeah, so you're probably wondering, isn't it suspicious that all these documents just came out of nowhere? Yeah, like where is he saying that he found it? So he, he was explaining that he relied on a network of tipsters track down modern descendants of early Mormons and mine collections of 19th century letters that had been saved by collectors only for the postmarks rather than the contents. So he was like, oh, I found a bunch of collectors that only collect documents that have certain postmarks, but they don't care what's on the pages. So I was able to just buy these significantly historic documents from them because they didn't care what they didn't was... care know what they had? Yeah. Huh. That's kind of a solid story. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. Well, and in the show, the series on Netflix, they're interviewing people that were his colleagues in the document trading business. So all these collectors and they're all explaining like, yeah, people usually don't tell their secrets of where they find stuff because, you know. Okay. It's like It's like any collector, you don't want to like give away your secrets of where you find these cool things because you want to keep it for yourself. Yeah. It reminds me of, like, how the paparazzi works, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. They, they keep it all secret of how they get their tips or, like, where, you know, yeah. they get their info. Exactly. So, aside from the Mormon history, he also forged and sold signatures of many famous historical figures such as George Washington, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Daniel Boone, John Brown. Some of these people, I don't freaking know who they are. Andrew Jackson, Mark Twain, Nathan Hale, John Hancock, Francis Scott Key, Abraham Lincoln, John Milton, Paul Revere, Miles Standish, and Button Gwinnett, who, Button Gwinnett, I guess, he is the most rare person to find his signature and most valuable of any signer of the Declaration of Independence. Really? Yeah, like, he's kind of an, in, personally, he's, I don't know who he is, so he's yeah. like an insignificant person who's on the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. So it's really rare to find anything of his, so he would forge stuff, mm. and it would be a high rare. in value. So he expanded then, from going, like, focusing on just the LDS history, now he's going for the U.S. history. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, oh, it's boy. intense. And no one knows how much is out there that's not real. Gosh, that stresses <laughs> me out. I, I know. I like it. <laughs> It's so crazy. It would be like bank notes. Like from, from the presidents and stuff, it would be like just their signature or a letter written to somebody. It wouldn't be like, I, I think the U.S. history stuff is more signatures than it is anything else. Okay. Not, Not history like, altering. That makes sense. He's just going after the Mormon church because he hates it. I see. So Hoffman's grandest scheme was to forge what was perhaps the most famous missing document in American colonial history. The Oath of a Free Man. Yeah. He created it. So it's a real thing, but yeah. the original actual document is missing. So, oh, this is like juicy stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, the okay. Oath of a Free Man had been printed in 1639, the very first document to be printed in America. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Only about 50 copies had been made. A genuine example was probably worth over a million dollars in 1985. Whoa. Yeah, so the very first document ever printed in the colonial America time. So, there was 50 copies and all of them went missing? All of them are gone. Huh. 
So, okay, both of a free man. Um, he was working with this other guy in, in New York City who owned a antique shop or something. He went into business with this guy. He said, hey, if they put it through all this testing to legitimize it, since you're helping me get it tested, if it's authentic, you can have half of what I get from it. So it'd be $1.5 million that he was going to get from Oath of a Free Man. And the guy he was working with would have got half of that. So let's just go on to how this story gets worse. Oh dear, I forgot that this is a true crime. Yeah. I mean, like, besides those crimes. Yeah. So, October 15th, 1985, a box wrapped in brown paper addressed to Stephen Christensen, who is the guy that bought the salamander letter from Mark K. Okay. okay. It was delivered to the sixth floor of the judge building in Salt Lake City in Stephen Christensen's office. Mr. Christensen went to pick up from the doorway of his office. There was an explosion that blew the door off his hinges and Stephen Christensen was dead. Whoa. So this brown paper box that said to Steve Christensen uh, was a bomb. Was a bomb. And he knows how to make bombs. Yeah. Right. Yep, yep, yep. Stephen was set to have a meeting with his business partner, Randy Rigby, who was 10 minutes late because he was picking up some documents for them to look at because they're document traders, right? Right. He couldn't reach the office and kept getting the answering machine as he got to the building where fire trucks and police cars were everywhere. He raced up the stairs as he got to the office. There was debris everywhere, nails in the walls, pop cans all over the floor. Oh it was gosh. a disaster and Steve was just laying on the ground dead. Wow. Um, and it's weird that the show like actually showed the crime scene photos. Oh, really? Oh. I mean, you don't see too much gore. You just yeah. see it guy laying on the ground but still yeah Ugh. Uh, one hour later there was another explosion at a home in holiday when the bomb exploded it killed the wife uh kathy sheets of one of christensen's former business partners gary sheets the bomb was meant for gary the Salt Lake Tribune got a call from a mystery tipster who said there are more bombs all over the Salt Lake Valley. So the next little bit, they're like, okay, what's the common ground here? Who wants them dead? You know, yeah. and then who else would be a target? So they're so like profiling. Yeah. So the only connections they had were one, financial dealings they had as partners okay. in, you know, their past. Right. And this white salamander letter that was now in possession of the LDS church. They bought that together, okay. and it's now in possession of the LDS church. Yeah. The day after the bombings on October 16th, the community of document dealers made the connection early, knowing they were dealing with the salamander letter, and many of them tried to get a hold of Mark to warn him that the bomber could be targeting their group of people. Saying, yeah. like, hey, like, it's so sad because they're interviewing these guys... And they're like, I tried calling Mark. I had to warn him that he could be in danger. And then knowing that, that he's the he was the one. Yeah. The realization that McClellan Collection could be the reason behind the bombings due to the controversial contents. So McClellan Collection is the one that talks about Joseph Smith's older brother was actually the one who had the vision. Right. Okay. So they hadn't actually seen the collection yet. Yeah. But because the bombings were over this, they had to kind of talk about what what it was kind of about right um christensen was scheduled to purchase the mcclellan collection for mark kaufman that morning but mark was actually in a meeting with president hinckley just a few hours after the bombing with the mcclellan collection to sell it to the church oh so he was gonna sell it to steve christensen uh-huh. bomb went off right but then he went to the church and was like hey i'll sell this to you 
but he didn't ever get to the meeting. Let's see, President Hinckley said in a press conference that Hoffman was going to donate this to the church. They had no intention of purchasing it. So he's like, nope, we didn't have a deal about purchasing it, but actually most of the dealers knew that there was a deal that they were gonna pay 300,000 for it. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very confusing. A little. I it, just feel like there's a lot of lies. There's so a lot like... of like double deals going on, mm -hmm. as well as like the church is like, nope, we're not involved. No, this has nothing to do with us. We were, he was gonna donate it. We weren't gonna buy it because they didn't want to seem like they were involved in any like shady stuff. Okay. Then there was another explosion on the front seat of a Toyota MR2, Mark Kaufman's car. In the trunk, they found the McClellan collection, all burned up and whatever from the explosion. Mark Hoffman was laying on the street. He was found by an LDS man. Sorry, this is really funny. He was found by an LDS man in his news interview. This man said, he gave him a blessing and said, quote, I took out my oil and commanded him to live and that medical help would get to him quickly, which it did. I commanded him to live. Okay. No, like, CPR or, like... <laughs> yeah. No, like, life-saving things. No. Yeah. He no. gave him a blessing and he lived, so... Way to go. Oh, so one of the... One of his closest colleagues said, This poor man thought that he was doing what was right, giving this guy a blessing, but he really just gave a blessing to Satan. <laughs> yeah, like, there's no reason to say this guy. Yeah. So his friends in the document and dealing buying community were freaking out. They tried to warn him. But he was still bombed so they're like oh my gosh they went after mark yeah. we're all in trouble you know because they don't know who who this person is yet right so he bombed himself i think he dropped the bomb oh i'm pretty sure that's what happened oh, it doesn't really say but i i think he was putting it into his car and it exploded i see they had police calling each one of them to leave with their families and they needed their homes to be searched for bombs so all these guys are like, shit, like we're gonna be killed. Someone's out to murder all of us, right? Like our names are on a list. <laughs> right. That would be the scariest feeling. Right, to be imagine? on someone's hit list. And you don't know who the person is. Yeah, or why. Or yeah, and you know bombs are going off. Yeah, that like would I would be, be so scared. Scary. I would be scared to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So Mark's wife got a call saying that Mark had been hurt in a car explosion and she immediately started shaking and her sister drove her to the hospital. When she got there, she said that Mark was covered in glass and he was missing the tips of his fingers. Wow. And she was like, it makes no sense. Why the heck would anyone target Mark? You know, she didn't understand and she had no idea what was going on uh -huh. or that he was involved in, involved in forgery. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Temple Square was evacuated and put on lockdown. They assumed the assailant was an LDS member who knew the contents of the collection and had a crisis of faith moment and went after these people. Hmm. Here's like how the investigation went, okay? Okay. The investigator assigned to the case, Jerry Diala? We're just gonna call him Jerry because I don't understand his last name. <laughs> so he remembers seeing the bombing on the news. He's like, I know I'm gonna be assigned to this because it was like homicide. He's like, this is up my alley. Yeah, so, so he's like, ugh, that's my morning. Like, that's what I'm gonna be dealing with. <laughs> Jerry didn't know anything about Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, being in Salt Lake, he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, or anything about the document world either. Camp Salina. I never knew this was here. So should I stop here or should I like park somewhere? I don't know. Okay. Um, so he didn't know anything about Mormons. 
Yeah. So he started to think the church was involved somehow. The investigator team was set up a war room where they, you know, put their investigation notes and evidence and brainstormed everything. Yeah. And they're like, okay, so the church is not cooperating. So they're like, they must be involved. The authority said Gordon B. Hinckley was interviewed and asked if he kept record of the meetings he had with Mark Hoffman. And he said, no, we don't keep anything like that. Which you think that they would because if they're doing business meetings and they're exchanging money, you'd think that they'd have some record of it. receipts and stuff. Right. The police were convinced the church was not being honest. And Hoffman at the time was in surgery and no one knew if he was going to pull through. And at this time they didn't know what kind of man he was. The other document dealers and buyers were on the list of suspects. There was Brent Metcalf. He was a colleague of Mark and a partner of Steve Christensen who died in a bomb. Alvin Rust, who helped fund Mark's purchase of the McClone collection. Um, Shannon Flynn, which is Mark's closest friend, colleague who is in Mark's close circle. Whenever he quote unquote discovered a rare document, mm-hmm. Shannon would be the first to see it. So I wonder if Mark, like, would show him and see his reaction before the next step. Like, he was the first test, mm-hmm. I wonder. So these guys were all suspects of who could have been targeting these guys. But Shannon was actually the first one to be criminally charged with possession of an unregistered firearm. So they just searched his place, and he had guns that he wasn't supposed to have. So he was charged. The search of his home also turned up some incriminating evidence regarding the bombings, which was only a circumstantial book they found called the Anarchy cookbook which described how to make homemade bombs but they had no other evidence that any bombs were actually and made. Was, was that like an antique book that he just had? Yeah he's like I've read it but I didn't use it <laughs> you know. Eyewitnesses were also being interviewed at this time. One eyewitness said they remembered a clean cut man holding a brown paper wrapped box with a green letterman jacket. So Brent Metcalf one of the other suspects and colleagues remembered hearing the news. He was like Hold on a second. Mark has a green letterman jacket that he always wears. So, when Mark was released from the hospital, his wife was grateful to have him home. She could tell something was off, though, and he mm-hmm. wasn't being normal. But the police got a search warrant for Mark's house, and they were looking for the Letterman jacket and anything that had to do with bombs. They didn't find any evidence about the bombs, but they did find the Letterman jacket. They went through all the documents they could find in his house, just trying to understand the motive. Mm-hmm. Turns out, Mark was in a lot of debt. He was living a super lavish lifestyle. He was used to growing up sheltered in Utah. Yeah. But because of the business he was in, he was traveling a lot. So he'd go to New York City and that's where he met the guy that was helping him with the oath of a free man. And he would drink and drink and drink and, you know, it was just different. And he would get the most expensive hotels. Like, he was just living way beyond his means. Yikes. So the guy that he was working with in New York City was Justin Schiller. Um, He was a New York City gallery owner where they became friends quickly he definitely looks like a shady dude (laughs) it's all over his face mark's wife mentioned that mark felt like status was the most important thing he wanted everyone to know that he was doing well and that he had a lot of things so he bought a blue sports car when they went to go buy a minivan because they had four kids and he they went to go buy this minivan and he's like i like that blue car so they bought it and it's like way more than yeah 
they bought all the expensive gadgets, like a camcorder and stuff like that. <laughs> and Dora, his wife, said that he constantly had the camera running, like, all the time. Really? Like, it was weird. Huh. <laughs> it was weird. When they would show the documentary, they would show him videoing his wife watching the news up talking about him being a suspect. It was the weirdest that thing. That sounds so... It's narcissist. Yeah. Mark was constantly moving documents and money from this person to that person, and it was difficult to keep up with. Dora said that they would get calls from people who he was doing deals with that they were upset about not getting the money they were owed, and Mark would just brush it off. Do you think that's why he was going into debt? Because he's like, oh, don't worry. I can pay this off later. So Mark wasn't worried about the finances because he knew he was going to get millions of dollars for the oath of a free man because they authenticated it. They said it was real. Yeah. So it was only on that. It was only a matter of time. Yeah. He even went through a lie detector test and he passed, I guess the norm, if someone's telling the truth, they'd get like a, a spike that went up to 12 mm-hmm. and he got a 14. Oh. So they're like, I've never seen that before. Like, that's really weird. Yeah, that is weird. The neighbors were like, no, he can't possibly be capable of doing anything like that, you know? Yeah. So Michael George, chief investigator, he was quoted in this documentary saying, motive is what we needed and motive is what we didn't have. So the war room investigators decided to go through all the evidence again. They found a paper with a business name. <laughs> I think I type out this, so I don't know if this is real. Cox and Clark McGraving. But I don't Cox know. and Clark engraving? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's Cox, but... Or we'll, clocks? I don't know. In, you said engraving. Engraving. Whatever. Who knows? <laughs> so this receipt was to the name of Mike Hansen. Mm-hmm. They had to find out who Mike Hansen was. Yeah. So they called the engraving place that we don't really know the real name of. <laughs> So from this business, they got the receipt from them, and it showed that this Mike Hansen person bought engraving called Deseret Currency, which is an engraving that he can use for forging documents. Mm. So they're like, hold on. If this is for his documents he was selling, what else is he forging? And if someone caught yeah. him forging documents, that would be a motive for murder. Okay. So. Or if he was just being accused of. Right. So the church at this point, mm-hmm. when they found out the motive could have been for forgery, the church sent the salamander letter to the FBI to examine. So now the church is like cooperative and they're like, oh yeah, he must have forged all of this stuff. Oh my gosh. Now um, it will help you since it's going to affect us. Yeah, since it shows it's not our fault, then we'll be cooperative. Yeah. Oh, so stupid. That was stupid. So the church sent the salamander to the FBI, right, to mm-hmm. examine. The police investigators brought on a forensic document examiner, George Throckmorton. <sighs> so many of those who authenticated the documents previously were historians, not document examiners. Oh, so they're just looking at, like, what it said, not the actual print. And, yeah, like, okay. like the ink and the yeah. paper and all that. So George, being a Mormon himself, decided mm-hmm. to bring on a second pair of eyes to make sure things were unbiased so Mm -hmm. he's like we're making this as kosher as we can right yeah so he called up another document examiner william flynn and he called him and was like hey what religion are you (laughs) and he was like um i'm an unpracticing catholic and they're like perfect (laughs) so they brought him onto the investigation uh these two document examiners looked at every aspect of the documents the ink how the paper was cut how it folds yeah anything that could point to it not being legitimized two months after the bombings the the oath of a free man was put through a bunch of testing and it was proven to be authentic. They were going to display it at the base of the Statue of Liberty. Whoa. And it was fake. Whoa. But they 
put it through all this fancy testing and that goes to show that he was really good at it though yeah like, like really he, good. it was an art to him wow this is when the FBI sent their evaluation of the salamander back to these guys. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh yeah, this is real. The FBI did? Yeah. And they're like, mm. The examiners were really disappointed that the FBI authenticated it. Like, you guys half-assed this. You mm. did not dive deep enough. But do you think that the FBI was like, nothing really surprises us, so this has to be real. Like, you guys are freaking Like, the other us. things that you say are just as crazy. So, like, <laughs> right. why? Yeah, I'm biased, but also they don't understand. You know, like. Right. I don't know. It is kind of weird. I kind of feel like they were just like, um, is this really worth our time? You know? Yeah, like, okay, LDS church, you don't run the world and can't tell us what to freaking do. Examine. Yeah. And do. Okay, whatever. Anyways. So at the time, Mark's wife, she was mentioning that Mark loved watching the news and seeing how the investigation was going mm -hmm. and that he was a suspect. And she was like, it was just so weird because he just looked so excited to watch the news. That's because he's a narcissist. Or, yeah. Dora. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>, Dora. <laughs> Get it together. So the doc examiner, George, was pretty upset with the FBI's analysis of the salamander letter. He thought they didn't go deep enough and that he was determined to prove that they aren't authentic mm -hmm. so he said the way he would go about doing these examinations if someone said it is fake he would do everything in his power to prove that it was real mm -hmm. which then would prove that it was fake you know what i mean yeah like debunk it or not yeah debunk or prove yeah okay like or if someone said this is authentic he would do everything in his power to prove that it wasn't authentic okay so that way it was that much more legit okay, okay. cool so after 110 hours of examining these documents George noticed the ink on the documents had been cracking. George and William made a system that they would each look at the documents microscopically and separate them into which ones were handled by Mark and which one had been in the church archives for many years. Mm, because okay. you know how he had traded one document for other historical mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. So they would separate them out by which ones had cracking ink and which ones didn't. And it just so happened all the ones that had cracking ink were the ones that were handled by Mark. Wow, that's some good detective work. There. Right? So as they explained this to the investigators, they thought if Mark was a forger, where else could he have been making the printing plates? So he made this mm -hmm. Deseret Currency plate right. in, at the engravers. Right. So he's like, okay, where else would he be making these? Wouldn't any of those engravers stop and think, why do you want me to engrave this? I mean, them selling the engraving isn't illegal. Him using it to be forged right. is illegal, so... Anyway, they went to this place called Debuzik Engraving. The man there said a man by the name of Mike Hansen asked to have the printing plate made of Oath of a Free Man. Mm -hmm. So he said Mr. Hansen paid in cash, but he was a couple dollars short, so he had to write a check for the last two dollars. The check was in Mark Hoffman's name. Mm. So he was posing as this guy named Mike Hansen. I see. Okay. So they made the connection that it was Mark Hoffman. That was his alias. Because, yeah, because of this check. Which proved the oath of a free man was a forgery. Wow. Ugh, isn't it crazy? How did they go yeah. through all that testing and they're like, yeah, this is legit. Like, and they didn't so even go back to like the most simple thing, you know? <laughs> right. So his friend Shannon, he was like, what the fuck? He was really upset that he was used in all of these lies. Tried to get away with murder and then continuously lied to him about being involved in any of it. So to be lied to for someone you think is your closest friend, like it's the saddest thing. And that's where trust issues come from. Yeah, like <laughs> freaking psychos. Narcissists just don't give a shit, though. They really don't. 
So Mark was arrested for murder and forgery February 1986. He pled guilty January 23rd, 1987 to second degree murder and theft by deception to avoid the death penalty. Really? Yeah. And confessing his forgeries in open court. In January 1988, he was sentenced to life in prison. In an interview with prosecutors, Mark describes his crimes as more harmless experimentation rather than criminal. Uh, no. That caused a lot of harm. He had a room full of his documents, his forgery equipment, and he didn't allow his wife into that room. Um, at one time, he apparently told her about the Anthon script. So he said to his wife and showed it to her, like, after they found it, he's like, I made this. And she's like, what? Mm. And he's like, I made this. She's like, Not no. his first one, right? Yeah. Okay. And she's like, no. And then he was like, no, nah, I'm just kidding. I mean, he was just testing her, mm -hmm. and she thought he was joking. And yeah. then when he said, no, nah, I'm just kidding, then she, like, brushed it off. The assumption is that Mark's goal was to gain enough credibility that he would be the one to, quote, unquote, discover the lost 116 pages of the original Book of Mormon manuscript. That he, was his end goal. Huh? Yeah, he wanted to be the one to write it and have it in church doctrine. Wow. And that he really had a he was, for he was almost there, though. Yeah. He probably would have got there yeah. if he didn't bomb anybody. Damn it. So, Literally blew it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he had this process for aging the paper. He would use a fish tank and he would put the paper on these clips and then he would have this mixture of chemicals and then have electricity from the chemicals into the fish tank mm -hmm. and then he would let it like sit in that electricity field or whatever yeah and it would age the paper oh where did he learn that though i know and then he just had this weird concoction of stuff to make the ink so a lot of the time when they look at documents the ink kind of pulls through the rest of the paper mm -hmm. and you can see it on the other side so how he did that is he put it on kind of like a window pane thing mm -hmm. and then he would use his vacuum cleaner and pull the ink through the other wow. side yeah that's really smart watch the documentary you'll see it because I didn't explain it very well. I think he did. So he was sentenced to serve five years to life in the Utah State Penitentiary in Draper. Mm -hmm. On January 1988, one year after he entered prison, he attended a hearing before the Board of Pardons. When the board explored his thinking regarding the homicides, his responses convinced them to refuse to set a parole date. They're like, yeah, you're never getting out. Whoa. Shortly after the hearing, coded letters threatening the board's lives were found in Hoffman's cell, and the investigators learned that even before the hearing, he had threatened their lives in conversations with other inmates, trying to put a hit on everyone on the Board of Pardons. Holy cow. Yeah, he's just psycho. Yeah, he totally is a narcissist, though. Yeah. Thinking that he can just do anything he yeah. wants. So. Yeah. So shortly after, Dora filed for divorce, obviously. Mark attempted suicide after that in his cell by overdosing on antidepressants he got from other inmates. He was revived, but he spent 12 hours lying on his arm, blocking circulation, and caused muscle atrophy. So his forging hand was permanently disabled. Good. Uh, Mark is currently Karma. serving. Right. Mark is currently serving his sentence in the Utah State Prison in Draper, Utah. And that is the story of Mark Hoffman. Wow. And he really effed up the lives of the people that he was colleagues with, like the other collectors. Mm -hmm. It's really sad to watch them really? talk about, like, the aftermath. One of them was excommunicated from the church. Why? Like, was it involving with the documents It was after stuff, all or? this, because he was... So after all of this that happened, he was like, no, the church needs to be more transparent in their history and the documents, because they do keep documents unpublished. Mm -hmm. There's a 
what is it called? We used to go there. Not me, but mm-hmm. I used to work for a security company, and we would hold a lot of our documents in this. They call it the mountain, mm-hmm. and it's a safe in the mountain, literally. Oh, really? And it's hard to get to, and you have to have a whole lot of clearance, and the church holds a lot of stuff there. Like, they have a huge section of it. I didn't know that. I don't know where it is. If someone does, don't go there and do anything bad because I'll shoot you. It's that lockdown. Whoa. Like Area 51. Yeah. Like you will be killed if you try to... So sketchy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good so... research though. That was... You did a lot. It was basically yeah. the entire documentary. <laughs> <laughs> like you took notes the whole time. Yeah, I took notes the whole time and then I filled in the blanks from Wikipedia too. But really you should go watch it. It's the murders among the Mormons. Okay. You should watch it. It's a docuseries. Yeah, right? it, there's three episodes. Oh, okay. And they're yeah. like an hour long each, oh. so. It's very interesting, but that's the thing. You have to research. Even if you find something you don't like about whatever, research it. Get more than one source mm-hmm. so that if you, like, because I had heard that Joseph Smith was into treasure hunting. I didn't know about the black magic. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't read any of that, but yeah. I heard about the treasure hunting. It could have stemmed from this document. It, mm-hmm. And then just kind of went on from there. Like snowballed. And- but what if there were more sources that were actually legit? But honestly, now I feel like I'll never know the truth because who knows how many more documents of his are out there. That's why that- it stressed me out. I'm like, who knows what's real and what's not? No now? one knows freaking anything. And people were saying, like, you just don't know. And there are people that have tried to sell some of their stuff. Then they find out that something they paid tens of thousands of dollars for was forged by Mark. Now it's probably like, oh, this is so cool. I have one of his forged things, Mm, but... Like, that has a value now, kind of. Kind of. Then it makes you wonder, too, like, (laughs) if anybody who did research based off of his forged work... It's so freaking scary that he was Mm -hmm. able to do that. Like, this guy wasn't... Like, he was smart, but not. So it's like, if he was able to figure out a way to forge things, I'm sure there are... Like, if he didn't bomb anybody. Yeah. Literally, if he didn't bomb anybody. He would have been able to get away with even more. Mark, you son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you want to tell people where we are? We are in Salina. We are at a camp, but I've never heard of it, so I'm excited to hear. Yeah, we're in Salina, Utah, which is about two hours south of Salt Lake City. And we are at Camp Salina. This is actually a World War II POW camp. POW camp. Yeah. Did you know that Utah has had World War II POW camps? No. According to utahhumanities.org, there were camps at the Naval Supply Depot in Clearfield, the Desert Chemical Warfare Depot, Hillfield in Layton, there was one in Tooele, and there was one in Ogden. It's called the Utah Army Service Forces Depot. There was also one at the Bushnell General Hospital in Brigham. There was also one at Dugway Proving Grounds, and in Logan, and in Orem, and in Tremont, and in Salina. What? I never knew. What? Yeah. So that's how many? That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What year were they active POW camp? Um, after the U.S. entered World War II, which was in okay. 1941. My gosh. Who, this, who was in these camps? Uh, like German and Italian and even Japanese. How did they get to Utah? I'll get there. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I explained it. We're close. Okay. Okay, let me just get cozy. Okay. So, and I want to tell everybody that my story is a true crime story and a haunted story. So. Okay. Plus a bonus at the end. I love bonuses. (laughs) Yeah. 
so before it was a camp, it was um, used for something else. Okay. So President Roosevelt, he signed the New Deal order, and part of that, he basically designed programs that would help alleviate the poverty that was caused by the Great Depression. Okay. And they called that the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC. So if you look on the, the building, see that, yeah. yeah, it says CCC slash POW camp. Okay. For this program, young and unemployed men would work labor jobs for the government in exchange for not only a paycheck, but also free housing and meals. And mm. some even gained a basic education by learning to read and write. Oh, okay. Yeah. The CCC's biggest accomplishment was reforesting. They planted trees where there had been forest fires. And if you combine all of the CC camps across the United States, Overall, 3.5 billion trees were planted. That's cool. Yeah. During the Great Depression. Yeah, we need more trees. Yeah, seriously. So, when the U.S. joined World War II, the program ended because the young and unemployed men were then being drafted. Camp Salinas history starts in northern Africa in 1943, when the U.S. and the U.K. armies captured around 100,000 enemy troops who were part of the German Africa Corps, under the command of one of Adolf Hitler's most favorite generals, Erwin Rommel. The German Africa Corps were still Nazis, who still participated in war crimes, but they gained a reputation with the Allies as being clean in war. Basically, they just weren't a part of the concentration camps, they, they were still Nazis, but yeah. they just weren't the worst of the worst. Yeah. Erwin Rommel, um, he was the leader of the German Africa Corps, and he was praised then and even now for his qualities as a leader and for his abilities to make quick decisions under pressure when the odds were against him. Many look back and applaud him for how many times he disobeyed Hitler's commands. And in Germany today, German Africa Corps are their most celebrated World War II fighters. Hmm. So when these troops were captured, the POW camps in England were already at max capacity. It was decided to send their prisoners to the U.S. Western deserts because they would be so far away from home and across the seas, so it was doubted that the prisoners would even try to escape and if they did they wouldn't get very far because they speak German oh so like if you're you know at that time and you speak German it's like what are you doing here right for real where are you gonna go exactly first some of these 100,000 troops were sent to Fort Douglas up in Salt Lake City but it was quickly determined that they needed another camp to send the overflow of prisoners so like many other CCC camps in 1943 Camp Salina was chosen to be converted into a prison so after it was converted into a prison about 250 German prisoners were sent to Camp Salina. The town was shorthanded on labor workers since many of them were being drafted, so the prisoners were paid a small amount of money to work on the local farms. Isn't that weird? The prisoners were paid money to work on the farms. And I'm like, they shouldn't have been paid. I don't know, that piece That's is weird. That's an interesting uh, prisoner of war situation, but all right. Yeah, and what's weird, and I didn't really like go into specifics in my notes, but they kind of just lived with the locals and they came and slept here at night. Like they were just kind of like civilians during the day and they, they were prisoners at night. Yeah, that's how it worked. Well, Isn't that wow. Weird? How lucky are they? I know, right? When on the other side, the prisoners of war in their territory were being starved, gas and chambered, and yikes. Yeah. Anyway. Da -da -da -da. Oh, in newspapers, the locals described the prisoners of war to be friendly and willing to work. I read that some of these prisoners ended up returning to Salina with their families decades after the war to visit. So in May of 1945, the German army surrendered and it was becoming the end of the World War II. Hold on. <laughs> okay, I'll get to those notes in a second. It's just not there yet. 
Um, so, because the end of the war was coming and these prisoners knew they were going to go home soon, there was a buzz in the camp, a skip in the prisoner steps, you know, they're going to go home to their families again. But across the U.S. at prisoner of war camps, a lot of the U.S. soldiers were upset because they were like, we never got to go fight in the war. We're just here being a guard. Yeah. You know, I never got to get out there and fight and, and like, see hero. action. Yeah, exactly. So that was a pretty common feeling among a lot of the U.S. soldiers that were working at these camps. They felt cheated in a way. I bet the soldier that actually went to war and came home were like, count your blessings, dude. I know. Isn't that so horrible? It's like, don't wish you went through what I went through. I'm sure they would say something like, I want to wish this on my worst enemy Mm -hmm. because they deal with so much afterwards. So at this time, there was one particular guard here at Camp Salina that was really, really, really pissed that he didn't get to go fight in the war. And his name was Clarence V. Bertucci. And he is quoted saying, someday I will get my Germans. I will get my turn. And he was saying that after they had already surrendered. Wow. So this guy just wanted to kill some Germans. Mm -hmm. Clarence was from New Orleans, Louisiana. And he was born on September 14th of 1921. He was 18 when his dad died in the war. So he enlisted in the war a year later when he turned 19. And he was known to have a discipline problem right from the start. Hmm. And he was stationed as a guard at Camp Salina as an attempt to keep him out of trouble. Hmm. Now on to these ones. (laughs) Okay. So two months after the Germans surrendered, Private Clarence Bertucci was drinking at a local bar. So he stumbled into Mom's cafe, ordered some coffee, and he tried to sober up before his midnight shift at the watchtower at the camp. He started flirting with the waitress and saying, Just you wait, something exciting is going to happen tonight. Ugh. So she brushed it off, but at midnight, Bertucci climbed the watchtower to relieve the previous guard on <clears throat> duty, and Bertucci waited until all the guards were back in their beds before he loaded the tower's 30 caliber machine gun and fired at the sleeping Germans. It was around 12.30 when he fired the tents, and when he fired, there were three consecutive bursts of firing. He hit 30 out of the 43 tents. Wow. An officer ran up the tower and Clarence surrendered peacefully. American soldiers immediately began treating the wounded and transferring 21 German soldiers to the Salina Hospital where emergency quarters were set up. Dr. Ray E. Noyes, I think is how you pronounce it, was a supervising doctor and he called in several other doctors from the surrounding communities to come help. The hospital was over capacity with 29 victims. Every room was full, hallways were full, and even the waiting area was full. The dead were placed on the west lawn of the hospital because they had no room for them. That sucks. They almost got to go home. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I read a comment on a Facebook group that I'm a part of, and somebody said that the person who runs the museum here actually has first-hand accounts of when he was a kid, and he raced to the hospital to see what was going on, and he saw all the dead bodies. No way. Yeah. Wow. It only took him 15 seconds to fire 250 rounds. Eight German soldiers were immediately pronounced dead, and one more later died at the hospital in Kearns, Utah. All in Kearns? Yeah, he was transported up there and then died a few days later. Because I like, guess that was like the main military hospital was in Kearns. Hmm. That bad juju is what makes Kearns literally the worst place on the I planet. I was thinking about that because a lot of like the POW camps and stuff are like in Ogden, Layton, that area, and that whole area is just bad. And Kearns and Tooele. No offense if you live in these places, but they <laughs> suck. <laughs> We're like naming all these counties basically. Oh, <laughs> uh, this one, this one, 
this on everywhere except where I live. I'm right. just kidding. So with the commotion at the camp, the citizens of Salida also woke up in a panic because they thought the German prisoners were trying to make an escape. Oh. But then they were informed of what actually took place. Yeah. And 13 of the wounded men were eventually transferred to a hospital up in Kern. And then the, for the soldiers who died, funeral services were held for them at Fort Douglas in Salt Lake City. And they were buried with full military honors. They were buried in American khakis because they didn't have any swastikas available. What? I know. What? Yeah. So. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah. I, like, I have mixed feelings. I know. I'm glad that we treated them well because good karma goes a long way. Yeah. But it's also like, did they deserve it? Just send them to their home. <laughs> Let them d give them whatever honors they want. It's, it's just excessive. Yeah. But I mean, good for us. <laughs> I yeah, know. I know. And like the, the articles I, I kept reading kept saying, you know, like if it were our, like if it roles reversed, this is what we would hope. Oh, uh, yeah. So that's that was a lot of the articles that I read. Okay. Time Magazine dubbed the name for this event as the Midnight Massacre. And it's known as the worst massacre in a prisoner of war camp in U.S. history. Wow. So the museum now, it honors the men who died, and it displays the artifacts as well as the structures from the camp. Mm -hmm. And they've been restored. So I believe that these two buildings are original, but restored. Okay. And then the watchtower used to be here, but I read that it fell over. Well, so they did restore it, like, back in 2016, and it fell over since then. So they didn't do a very good job? I guess not. <laughs> Just fell over. Yeah. Did someone kick it? <laughs> Maybe. They're just like, mm, this doesn't need to be here. Yeah. Fun fact. Not fun, but like an interesting fact, and I couldn't find any any information about why, but the American government didn't inform the families of the deceased until 1948. Not until three years later. So all these prisoners of war got to go home, the ones that survived, but still the families of the deceased, they weren't even notified until three years later. Why? That's weird. I could not figure that out. They just forgot? Yeah, I don't know. So the only reason he gave for what he did was that he just hated Germans, so he killed Germans. Bertucci was declared insane by the military court and sent to a psych ward in Brentwood, New York, until he died in December of 1969. He was sent to New York. I just think they send him so far away. I know, it's like just keep him here. Uh, there are psych wards all over the west coast. Yeah. Although this one was actually for uh, military people because it dealt with the people that were dealing with the shell shock, oh, okay. the PTSD. So like they just kind of put him there because they're like well this kind of fits in the same umbrella I guess. Like you have issues about the war so that's why he went there. So on to the paranormal. Yeah let's hear it. There's not a lot but guests have reported that the property has an overall reverence to it. Not really a sad energy or an angry energy just a reverence. Okay. People have reported hearing disembodied voices inside the museum, and they've also heard, they've also experienced electrical disturbances around the property. Uh, in fact, someone did an investigation here a few years ago, back in 2015, so before it was all restored and everything, and before the museum was here. Mm -hmm. um, they did an investigation here, and they got a picture of a full body apparition. No. Yes. Do you want to see it? Yeah. What? Isn't that so cool? So this was taken by Vale Paranormal. So you can find them on Facebook. I know they have a Facebook page. But yeah, that's the evidence they captured. And I'm going to make sure we share this on our Instagram page for everybody. Wow. That is nuts. Mm -hmm. Like you can't even see through it, you know? Like it is full what? on. Oh, that is so cool. But like how? <laughs> Where was it? Over here? Maybe. It's kind of hard to tell. Because this looks snow. like a building. 
Yeah. That is so crazy. This is the kind of evidence I'm looking for. When someone <laughs> says that something's haunted, mm -hmm. I want to see this. Right. And sad news, that's all we have. Really? Of this place. Have, has anybody done any more investigations? Well, I contacted the museum and I just said, hey, like I'm doing this research and I just want to know, has any groups come by? Like, is there anything around that? And they told me that a team did come here to investigate a long time ago and they didn't find anything. So I think that was since the museum was open. Okay. Um, they didn't find anything. And since then I was told that the city will not allow for paranormal investigations here. Really? That's what I was told. And then somebody else told me, cause I said that to like another historian that I talk with about some other things. It's like, yeah, they told me this. And he's like, that's not real. But I don't know. So if you, if you feel like you want to do an investigation, please get permission first. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. Cause I don't know. Cause that, that is pretty crazy. That's really cool. But and that's all of the, the evidence I have, you know, like to share. Yeah. So the bonus that I have is different types of haunts. And okay. we're going to learn about them. Okay. The number one that we're going to talk about is the stone tape theory. You ever heard of that? Stone tape. No. The theory that environmental elements are capable, capable of storing memories and capturing emotions. And then it's played back on a loop. Okay. Residual. I, residual. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, that's just another word for it. Residual is like the like layman's term for it. Okay. But like the actual term is the stone tape theory. Stone tape. Okay. Yeah. And with this type of activity, whatever you may witness is actually a scene from a time in history and the spirits don't actually acknowledge, respond, or interact with you. The stone tape theory is also known as residual hauntings and is probably one of the most common types of paranormal activity. Hmm. Then there's poltergeist activity. So poltergeist is a German word for noisy spirit. <sighs> <laughs> the activity usually consists of knocks, bangs, and objects or furniture will shake or move on its own. The activity usually becomes more intense and will oftentimes manifest into a voice or apparition. This is apparently the rarest type of haunt, but most people can agree that it's the scariest kind. Uh, yeah, but noisy ghost is way less scary sounding than, <laughs> right. than poltergeist. Right, I agree. <laughs> Just the German, ghost. the German twist on it makes it sound way more scary than noisy ghosts. <laughs> right. <laughs> in most cases, poltergeist activity seems to target young females, especially in their teens. Also, in most cases, the activity will typically only target one person in the household or in the group, and it's usually someone who is unknowingly controlling the energy around them. Interesting. Yeah. Which I'm like, Tori? <laughs> you okay? <laughs> yeah. She's just like... Things are just like flying across the house around her and she's just like unknowingly like calling it. <laughs> right. So the other type is demonic activity. So demons are entities that never had a human body. And if you believe in Christianity, the belief is that Satan and one third of heaven's angels rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven and those angels never got the chance to come down to earth and have a body. Now, Einstein pointed out that matter can be converted into energy and energy can be converted into matter. So demons are just pure energy entities and they can be described in three ways. And one is angelic. They may appear as something attractive to manipulate someone to do something sinful or out of the ordinary. So I think doppelganger. Mm. And you know how Kendall, in her story, the voice of her mom or her dad? Yeah. That's what I... That was. I'm guessing. Freaking scary. Yeah. That's way scarier than freaking noisy ghosts. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The other way they might manifest is by looking... Like, looking horrific or evil looking. Mm. They literally look like a hideous demon. Yeah. It's believed that demons don't actually look like that, but they know what we think is scary. And so they manipulate themselves to look at like what we think is scary. Well, whatever we're scared of. Yeah. 
Exactly. Because huh. they never had matter, so they don't actually have like a They don't form. look like anything. Right, exactly. But they can manifest that way to frighten us or to like make us feel uncomfortable or whatever. Yeah. Whatever their intentions are. Third way they might manifest is by black mist or fog, and that's the most common. And that's pretty self-explanatory. It's just like when you watch Ghost Adventures and they're like, oh my gosh, a black mist just went in front of that door. That could be considered demonic. Oh, okay. Or like the thing freaking crouching in the corner. Yeah. It's like a figure, but it's not like a figure. There's like a subcategory to this, or it's just shadow people. If I didn't add it, so I'm like, it's kind of just the same thing as the black mist. Or it's just like, like shadow figures that don't have a face or any kind of appearance. Or it might be just its own category, just misty black mist. Figures. Figures, yeah. Huh. Okay. So who knows about that one? So with the demonic activity, these creatures are very strong and usually make contact with some sort of violence, like pushing, hitting, or scratching. You may hear growling sounds like... You you may hear growling sounds and the temperature usually gets warmer which i thought was interesting warmer ghosts mm -hmm. are colder demons are warmer i mean they're from hell yeah. Uh, so then there's also intelligent activity. Back to Einstein, he believes we're all beings made of matter and we are made up of atoms and neutrons. And as we live, we have an energy aura that surrounds our living bodies. This aura is created by the electrical occurrences that are created through our bodies. He says our brains create brain waves. And Einstein figured out that when we die, we immediately lose six ounces of our weight. So it's believed that our weight that we're losing right then is our soul leaving our body. Oh, you're going to put me through an existence. <laughs> crisis. <laughs> so your soul energy aura thing is carrying the information and memories of what we used to be. When humans witness seeing these energies aura soul spirit things, we call them ghosts. But since these spirits have intelligence, they are able to interact and be aware of us and they can even touch someone and communicate. And there are seven possible reasons why a ghost might be tied to a site or a person. Okay. One, they died as a result of a traumatic event, murder, car accident, etc. Two, they have unfinished business. Three, the spirit may have died suddenly and not realize that they died. Four, the living loved ones are so emotionally distraught that they can't let go. Mm. So it's like the living person is like it's keeping, whole, them, keeping there. them there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, number five, the spirit is emotionally connected to their loved ones. So that's the opposite. And six, they cannot rest due to an injustice done to them. And seven, fear of the other side or judgment. Just scared mm. to go to heaven. Well... You know, it's all kind of sketch. And that's my story. That's awesome. Yeah. This is cool. I hope that they're... I always say this about every single place we go to that I want to do an investigation. <laughs> but I don't feel like we're allowed to. Right. Well, and like I, the museum told me specifically that the city doesn't allow it. I don't think the museum's going to give permission. Right. Because I mean, I can see how like some people think that paranormal investigations are a little bit... Um, Woo-woo. No. Well, yeah, that, but also, like, what's the word? Not disrespectful, but kind of disrespectful. Yeah. Or it's just, like, let them rest. Yeah. But obviously other people have different opinions, such as I. <laughs> In some cases, I guess, it makes sense. But Yeah. Like, you wouldn't want to do a paranormal investigation at, like, a concentration camp. Right. I feel like that would be disrespectful. Yeah. Sweet. I never knew this existed. That's kind of crazy. I, I really didn't realize there were so many POW camps, but clearly very different POW camps than what we know to be POW camps. Yeah, but you know what is weird to me is, so a lot of people don't know about this. And, okay, so I posted something on the Utah Haunted History, and people that were commenting that didn't know, they're like, why did we not get taught this in history class? Right, especially if it's local. Yeah. Like, you know, we had, we had, 
had a literal Utah history class yeah. in junior high. And it's all about the Mormon it pioneers. all about them. So it's like, why are we not talking about this? And it's not like, okay, yes, this was a tragedy that happened, but it still needs to be talked about. Well, even when we do world history and we learn about the World War II, mm-hmm. we should be learning Utah's role. Mm-hmm. Or, like, what our local significance, significance was. was. Yeah. I just don't understand what they choose to tell and teach. Yeah. It's, it's not just Mormons. Like, there's other history to it, too. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. But Punching I have a feeling <laughs> that it's going to change. Mm-hmm. I think there are more people that are woke now because they're doing their own research and stuff. There's a lot more people that aren't scared to say what they're learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, it just makes me mad. Um, so that's it for episode ten. And um, if you go to Instagram, we have a link tree, and you can find all our shit there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to have to say it all. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a Facebook, we have an Instagram, and Twitter. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> Damn it. We just we just don't know how to say it in a in a good way. So just look it up. If you have your own personal paranormal and true crime stories, you can write to us at stories at hauntandcold.com to be featured in a future Bring Your Own Booze episode. Where we interview you <laughs> and you tell us your story. You bring your booze and we'll supply a booze. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did we mention everything? I think so. Okay, well, thanks for listening, everybody. It's been real. It's been real fun. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Make it a good one, 2022. Yep. Yep. Mm Okay, bye. bye. (laughs)